Welcome to the podcast for pet carers. If you're a pet parent or work in the pet care industry, then this is the podcast for you. Our show is about all things pet care, discussing everything from cats and kittens, dog training, pet nutrition, boarding, grooming, daycare, and much more. Join us fortnightly as our host and dog trainer extraordinaire, Glenn Cook, chats with leading pet industry professionals. Welcome back to the podcast for pet carers. I'm host of the show, Glenn Cook, and today in studio, I've got the honor and privilege of being joined all the way from the United States of America, Mr. Cameron Ford. Hi, thank you very much for having me on the show. Great to have you. And for those who don't know, I've also had Cameron stay here with me for the last two weeks, which has also been a great pleasure as well to hang out and to swap a few industry stories. Oh, that's for sure. We've definitely got to know each other much more intimately now after two <laughs> weeks of uh, living together. Yep. And you've also got to know all our dogs quite intimately yes, as well. Exactly. Absolutely. Cameron's been here for a seminar where he's been in Australia conducting two different types of seminars, one on canine cognition mm -hmm. and the other one, which he's done a regular, which is his Oda Pays worldwide seminar, which he does both. He travels around the world teaching not only pet parents on how to do mm -hmm. both in scent detection and in canine cognition, but he's also been working with law enforcement groups as well. And Cameron is one of the few people that I know who has established a connection with the scientific community to not only verify what he's doing, but also to provide us with new access to science that is coming out regularly and rapidly at the moment, as funding is now starting to be put more into the pet space, especially in canine detection. Cameron, what I want to do is just get a, a little bit of an origin story about you, how you kind of got started in the beginning, but I really want to sort of focus the episode on canine cognition because you and I have been spending most of our time on Odapay, so your detection side of things. I have kept up to date a little bit on the canine cognition thing, but I kind of want an overlay on it and I want to pick your brain about that live on air so I can learn more about it. We, sure. we just haven't spent any time together really speaking about that and I really did want to get to know the minutiae about that. So sure. Cameron Ford, welcome to the show and how did it all start? How did it begin for you? Take us all the way back into the juvenile stages of Mr. Cameron Ford. So cue sound effects of the time travel. Yep. But uh, yeah, so now how I got into it was my neighbor as a little kid was the guy who started basically police canines in Florida. Right. I was a terrified little kid because he had these big, bad Dovermans, Rottweilers, German Shepherds at the fence next to my backyard. And they would, of course, bark and go crazy and be loud and everything else. So as a little tiny kid, you know, under five years old, I was intimidated by that. But at the same time, I was also very much infatuated with it. And as I got a little bit older, it was all I could think about. I would hang out in my neighbor's driveway and say to him, Mr. Gailey, Mr. Gailey, will you let me hang out with the dogs or can I pet the dogs? And it got to the point where as I got a little bit older, I was around, let's say, 10 years old or so, mm -hmm. used me as the demo kid. So he would bring me to the police canine demonstrations. He would bring me to training. And I was the kid that he could show that these vicious dogs wouldn't kill a little kid. So I would ride in the back of station wagons back in those days and sit back there with the dogs and go do demonstrations. And that ended up obviously having a big impact on me. Fast forward till my early 20s. Mm. He had, just to kind of give some preference or some reference there, him and his wife separated and divorced. So I didn't see him from, I think I was 13 years old until about, I guess it'd be like 19 or 20. Right. So I had just started my first college class and in the class I had a bunch of cops and they were like, hey, you should go right along with us. So in order to do that, I had to go to the sheriff's office and fill out a form. And I did that. As I was driving away, I saw the canine guys training. So I just pull over and I'm watching them train. And of course, you know, the cops are like, why is there a vehicle just sitting here? So the guy comes over to me, like, can I help you? <laughs> As and I, I do. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, I'm just watching. I said, a friend of mine used to do this all the time. And I was just watching your guys' dogs. I said, his name is Bob Gailey. And he goes, well, he's right over there. And he points. And I was like, holy crap, Bob. I said, tell him Cameron Ford's over here. Hey, Bob, some kid named Cameron's sitting over here. And that like re-sparked everything. We reconnected. So awesome. of course I stayed there the whole rest of that night watching training, found out that he had moved the business to a different location. Uh, he had a much bigger facility at this point. And then probably a week later I was working there, cleaning kennels, taking care of dogs. 
and apprenticing, doing all those things. And then at night, so that would be my whole day job was Mm -hmm. like, go take out dogs, clean kennels, exercise dogs, random things like that. And then by four in the afternoon, the canine guys would show up to the property and start class. It's Florida, so it was hot. So they would train at night. So from 4 p.m. until about 3 a.m., I would stay out there watching and just hanging out learning. For an entire year, I did that. I didn't catch a dog, didn't do anything. I literally sat around the little campfire they would have from time to time and just watched them train. I know from my experiences, because I had a similar parallel to what Mm -hmm. you did, Mm -hmm. how much fun did you have back then during those times? Oh, I I love doing it all the time. It was like the most amazing thing to be included with that brotherhood kind of thing. When you say you were in college, what were you doing in college at that time? I was getting my degree in criminology. Right. Yeah. I was doing that and I would take classes during the day and then work and things like that. My goal was I I wanted to do the police canine stuff. And I knew, I definitely know I was around 20 years old at that time. Right. The other part was then a few months later, I got a job at a veterinary clinic Mm -hmm. and I was working there as a vet tech. So I would do that during the day, then go to Bob's at night and still do training. And finally, after a year of watching, one of the guys who's a trainer that was kind of like Bob was the owner This other guy named Mike Ansley, he was the police trainer as far as he was a cop, but he would also help Bob out with the police canine classes. So Mm. anyway, Mike comes over to me and there's a bite sleeve in his hand and he throws it at my feet and goes, okay, you've watched long enough. It's time for you to catch a dog. I was like, I don't know what to do. And he goes, you've been sitting out here for a year watching us just imitate what we do. And that's basically what I did. I just did my best impersonation of them as a decoy. <laughs> and I got it pretty right, you know, and I was fit, 20 years old, you know. Yep. So I was athletic. I could do this stuff. So, of course, that turned me in from that point on. I became the full-time decoy, mm. full-time track layer. I was hiding in buildings all the time. They'd stuff me in cabinets and bathroom stalls. And so for an entire next year, all I did was do that. I was track layer. Like I said, everything that they could use me for, I did. And the following year, so now it's two years in when you're just being the complete decoy and everything they needed. The third year, there was a dog assigned to the Florida Highway Patrol, but that handler couldn't make it to that class. So the dog was just sitting there. So Bob goes, well, you can go through and work this dog. This was 1995. So I went through that whole 400-hour school and I worked that dog And my goal was I wanted to go be a cop right away. So now I'm right around 21 years old. I had the ambition to be a cop. And a lot of the guys in that class I was in said, hey, you could probably be a cop, but you should go do the military thing. And I was like, no, not doing that. And I was making stupid decisions in life, my personal life. I was working, but didn't have a direction. Mm -hmm. So I had the vet job for a little while. I started dating one of the vet techs. And then that relationship ended, which meant I lost my job because the vet told me, he goes, hey, look, I'm going to have to let you go because you guys got in a relationship. She's worked here longer than you ever have. Since you guys are not together anymore and she's not happy, I'm not going to have an unhappy staff member because she doesn't want to be, how did he say it? He didn't want the drama in the workplace, the the lover's drama in a workplace. (laughs) So he sent me on my way. And so now I I wasn't, I didn't have a normal nine to five job. So I was just kind of floating around and my family got together and there's there's a bunch of Ford men that were all together for a specific reason. They pulled me into the office and I remember my grandfather was at his house so it was my dad, my grandfather, and my uncles all there. Oh, so it was a proper intervention. Oh, yes. All oh, right. They're okay. like, yeah. yeah. So they said to me, what's your last name? And I said, Ford. And they, that stands for something. And what do you stand for? And, and, and kind of, you know, give me a little course correction. And of course, I said, let me, let me guess. You guys want me to go in the military. They were like, well, we think that would be a good direction, of course. And I, and most of my family had been all Navy men. Right. My uncle had a big history in government. So I yep. said to him, let me guess, you want me to be Navy? And he goes, no, actually, I would recommend the Air Force. And I was like, why the Air Force? And he goes, it's the only group in the military where the officer is the warfighter. Mm-hmm. So in this case, how the military is set up in most branches for us, it's the Army, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, and Air Force. Well, Army and Marine Corps, for sure, it is the, we call it the ground pounder, the infantrymen. They just, we joke around the term as they call them bullet catchers. They just, it's the old school way of war, which is you throw bodies at a front line mm. until eventually you have more bodies than bullets that make it through. And, you know, that was how World War II was in, in Vietnam and things like that. Now, of course, things are much more different with technology and so forth. But 
the catering to those branches of service is very different than the Air Force because the Air Force, it's the pilots that engage with the enemy. And he was absolutely right. The way the bases were, how the environment was in life over there is very different than how Marine Corps and Army life was. And the joke, of course, in the military branches is, oh, you're part of the chair force. Or, <laughs> you know, there's always inner, inner uh, rivalries within the branches. Yep. But they definitely, Air Force has always been known to be the softer, kinder, gentler aspect, only because, again, it's the officers who are catered to being pilots. So the environment, I would say, is never so harsh. And the front lines, they don't put the Air Force bases at the front line. They're way, way back because that's where all your aircraft are at. You don't want those taken out. So anyway, they were right. And I ended up going into the Air Force. Of course, recruiters tell you anything they can to get you on. Mm. I said I wanted to be a dog handler and I wanted to get into that. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I enter in the Air Force, go through all my training, and then I go to the police academy. And my first day at the police academy, I see on the gate door, it said, canine tryouts this afternoon at 3 o'clock. This is day one for me. I'm, I'm not even in-processed into the police academy yet. And I see this and I ask my, or we had like a liaison kind of person that gets you processed. So I said, how often do they have canine tryouts? And he goes, oh, only when they need them. And I'm like wait, I don't have a chance unless I go to this thing to go to K9. He goes, maybe, I don't know. I said, well, I want to go to that meeting. He goes, you're not even in process yet. I said, can I go to that meeting? He goes, okay, if you get everything done, I'll let you go to the meeting. And so I did, went there and I walked in that room and there was about 40 people in the room. Mm. And the head guy from the military working dog program goes, we have two open spots. I looked around and I was like, okay, I, I bet one will go to a female and one will go to a male. They'll probably even it out like that. So I go through a couple hours of them evaluating us, doing simple things, and then they go, okay, we'll get back to you guys. And fast forward about five, six weeks later, it was end of day of our training, and they said, oh, yeah, so canine made their selection of who they're going to select or who they're going to the school next. They go, lucky for you guys, whoever this is, you're going to spend 10 more weeks here in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. And the first one, they go, Airman Bell, stand up, and it was a female. Yep. And the next one, Airman Ford. So it was me. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, whew, got in. Amazing odds. Yeah. 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 So it was pretty cool. Mm. And then, so I did. I stayed in Texas for another few months. Once that was done, I got sent to, of all places initially, I was sent to uh, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. I was not real happy about that at first because I wanted to go back to Florida, be stationed over there where all my friends were at. I wanted to be a canine handler with all those in that area. And I called up Bob and I said, hey, uh, I got orders to Germany. I, I'm, I'm bummed out. And he goes, shut the hell up. I don't even want to hear from you that you're complaining about going to Germany. He goes, did you forget that everything that we've learned when it comes to working dogs, 90% of it comes out of Germany? Yep. And I was like. And the brains. Uh, yeah. He goes, so what you're saying is you're complaining about an opportunity to go to the motherland and go learn <laughs> from everything that we only talk about. Yep. And I was like, okay, I'll shut up now. And from that moment, I had fully embraced going to, to Germany, and I did. And then I had my time over there where I traveled all over. I was there for a little bit over four years. Fantastic. Traveled to every country. I learned NVBK, the, the Belgian ring sport. Yep. Learned KNPV. Went, that was Holland. Went to France, learned French ring. And within those countries, learned Mondio ring because it was kind of more spread out. But I wanted to make it my goal to learn these different programs. And... Right before I had finished my service with the uh, Air Force, I got invited to the German Polizei Canine Handler School. And I was, at that time, maybe one or two or three Americans that ever got to go through that. And I went through that school. My base commander allowed me to go because I was still on active duty time, but I was finishing up. So she gave me the, the freedom to go do that. I did that. I had to do it with my own dog, which worked out fine. I had my own Malinois, so I went through that school with that dog. And that was kind of like my first big resume bullet. Besides being a military working dog handler, I was also a graduate of the Diensthundeführer School in Germany. And that, when I came back to the States, opened the door a little bit for me to have, I got out of the military, I started a business and I was training, I was using all those contacts I had that I had made in Europe. I was a Schweikert dealer, which is a German equipment company. Mm. I was selling Schweikert stuff. I was bringing in dogs from different countries that I had made friends with. I was training up police officers. And now at this age, I was, I believe, 27, 27 ish, right around there. And I was just a young kid out there teaching guys who are now closer to my age or maybe a little bit younger. 
how to work their police dogs. Even though I lacked some obvious experience, especially on the law enforcement side, they knew I knew training mm. and I was bringing the dogs in anyway. And I, and because of the time I had spent traveling around Europe, learning the programs, I understood the dog's backgrounds better. So I was quicker at how to solve a problem that didn't match like for the dog. Like what we wanted to do in, in police canine was very different than what they were doing in KMPV or NVBK and so forth. And I could navigate my way through that way faster and easier than the police trainers who didn't know any of those backgrounds. So that really opened doors for me in that area to really help and, and grow as a trainer and build that relationship. At this point, this is 2000, 2001. Mm. I'll go a slight deviation here. So on September 10th, 2001, I got my explosive training aids. I had the only little bomb dog in the area besides one other cop. And a friend of mine was going to Tennessee to pick up explosives so we could train more bomb dogs. Well, the very next day was 9-11. Oh, my God. So the day before 9-11 happened, I got all the explosive training aids. Yep. I had one of the only bomb dogs in the area. 9-11 happens. I'm, I'm asleep. My pager's going off. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I end up going straight to the airport that was down the road from where I lived. And I was doing sweeps with my bomb dog there. And mind you, I'm, like I said, 27 years old, not a cop at that time, just a business owner training police dogs. From that moment on for the, those next five months, I was making a lot of money going around searching cruise ships. I flew to Boston Logan Airport about two days or three days later, if my memory serves me correctly. It was pretty close after 9-11 because we went and searched the Queen Elizabeth II cruise ship that was at port there. So we got called out there, searched that so that boat could leave. Next six months or so, I was super busy being a bomb dog handler. And then that really pushed forward the business for me and training cops because now my detection side was really getting busy. I had obviously experience being a detection dog handler and working mm. a dual purpose dog in the military. I had three military working dogs in my career. My initial ones were patrol and drug. And then my last one was patrol bomb. So when I was doing this work, I had experience and being former military, understanding explosives and risks and hazards and procedures and stuff like that. I was much more familiar than I would say even some of the cops at that time, because prior to 9-11, Bomb dogs were extremely rare. Yep. So like I said, people looked at me weird like, oh, you have a bomb dog. Why would you have that? So of course that paid off. So years pass and I did the business thing and I was training cops and I had agencies coming from San Francisco, California, all the way to Florida, only because I had a good website at that time. There was no social media. None of that stuff existed. They had just found me through social media or knew somebody else who bought a dog from me. And, you know, I built that business out and then... We had the big housing boom in the United States in 2006, 2007 timeframe, where literally you could like paint a house and turn around and sell it for $100,000 more because that's all you had to do. Yeah. Yeah. So then our market crashed and I sold my property because they gave me crazy money for the property I had. Yeah. So that's when I became a cop. Right. And I switched over from being a business owner, training cops to becoming a cop. And I became a police officer, worked for a small city that was right near where I lived. My house that I had bought after I sold my business was only a few miles away from the police station. So I, I literally lived in the city I patrolled. Mm. So the life was good. Did that for about five years. I worked for that small agency first and then transferred to a couple other agencies because I was chasing my dream to become a dog handler. And this was a life lesson learned too. I was I had a pretty good job at the first agency, mm -hmm. but a neighboring agency who I trained a police dog for said, hey, we want to add another dog. And I said, sure. Obviously, you know, I don't sell dogs anymore, but I have my own dog. Would the chief hire me with my dog and I can leave this agency, go to you guys? Sure. Day before I swear in, that chief took a job with the state and left. And then the new chief who was sitting there goes, hey, if they pick me to become permanent chief, Everything stays the same, but if they hire somebody different, I can't tell you what's going to happen. Sure enough, they hire somebody different. Yep. So then that guy was like, hey, I don't know what we're going to do about dogs. I'll get back to you. So all my best friends were at a much bigger agency down the road. So mm -hmm. they were like, hey, do you want to keep driving around neighborhoods for you know all night long? Or do so you that's do what you're doing as a cop, right? You were doing patrols, not dog Oh, work. yeah. At that time, I was just a normal police officer answering yep. your normal radio calls, going to domestics, shootings, et cetera, et cetera. Just normal American police work kind of thing. <laughs> How long was that for? Total time for that particular part was... Because I also did it in Texas, too. So if I add that time to it, about eight years. Right. Yeah. So once I made the jump to the bigger agency, 
And I knew it was a big change because we went from the small agencies I worked for first, there'd be a cat in the tree and we'd have five officers there. <laughs> and then I, I go to the, the, the bigger agency where all my best friends worked because I had the unit I moved to, I had trained all those handlers. We were best friends together. They were my brothers for sure. So when I worked there, they were like, hey, look, as soon as the cannon spot opens up, we're going to push you into it. But in the meantime, you work the road, but I'm going to reassign you every Friday night to canine. So we would always go do all the canine calls. But anyway, what the switch was, when I go to that agency, the bigger agency, there would be a robbery. It would go out as a robbery in progress initially. I would hear the supervisor go on the radio go, is the robbery still going on actively or is it over with? And dispatcher would contact and say, yes, it's already over with. All right, put it on hold. We'll get to it when we can. And I went from cats in a tree with five officers there to a robbery on hold because we were too busy with other calls was a huge shift in how I, I operated as a cop. And it was also a very different environment as a police canine handler. Mm. So as one of the agency trainers in that unit and working dogs within that whole program with those guys, because every dog in that unit I had imported for them. I had trained them all in the schools before I started working there with them. And my best friend was this unit supervisor. So we all just worked together, deployed together, really had fun. We had a very uh, busy environment, which meant a lot of experience. Mm. And you would learn what things in training work in reality and what things in training only work in training. So that was, those were very important moments. But during that time, I just realized, and this is now we started kicking into, so now we're at 2009 timeframe. The Iraq and Afghanistan wars are in full swing. Yeah. I started getting a lot of phone calls from companies who had known me back when I had my business because now they needed dogs to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. They needed trainers. And I finally got a call from somebody who said, hey, look, do you want to work for us as a trainer? We have a contract that we're looking at and your resume would be great for that. And I was at that point where I had been the cop a number of years. And by jumping around agency to agency too quickly, I kept restarting. So it only gets so far. And other than being at my friend's agency, they took really good care of me. I liked being a cop, but I loved working the dogs. Mm. And I missed being able to be the dog handler every day. I also went from being a business owner to being a subordinate in, you know, just being another cog in the wheel. Yep. You know, I didn't have a problem with it, but I also kind of missed my freedoms because when I was a cop, I still had to go to in-service training, had to go to court, had to go to other meetings and other operations that we'd set up. So my schedule was whatever the agency basically set up for me, and I kind of missed having my own schedule. So the temptation was stronger to go, okay, if this kind of work is right, and the guy goes, we're going to pay you double what you make now as a cop. Was there a lot of incentive to make the switch to go into the contracting world? Yeah, absolutely. Took me some time, but about six months later, I decided to go that route. I went into the contracting world and I ended up in Texas and I was training in a period of probably about two and a half years, 300 dog teams we trained and deployed. And I say we, because there was a, a ton of us involved. I was just another trainer, supervisor in that mix. And then those companies get very incestuous. They, you know, one company start off initially as separate companies and then one company buys out another company and everybody owns each other. And so I was out there deploying dogs with teams to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I got my police status in Texas. So I got to become a reserve officer in Texas, which basically meant I could go be a cop when I wanted to. And of course I did my normal thing. I'd hooked up that agency with dogs, trained those supervisors I had my own take-home car. Or I had the uh, ability to set my schedule. So basically, I went out and worked with them on Friday, Saturday nights, the best nights. Had complete autonomy to go wherever I wanted to. So I started spending most of my time working with another agency in that area. So they were in my jurisdiction. But I also helped them with their canine program. And they were a busier area. So I would spend most of my times over there. And the type of work I did, I was literally just doing dog calls only. So I got to deploy to every good kind of dog call there was, had a brand new dog myself that I had imported from Europe. He was nine months old when I first got him, trained him up, certified with him, and then started working him on those calls. And that I took that all the way until 2014, if I remember right, and ended up back in Florida for about a year because the company I worked for got bought out. Mm. And they were like, 
we got bought out by a huge company. So dogs to them weren't such a big thing. Like it was part of the thing, but they were much bigger into other aspects. Mm. So they they gave me a nice severance package, paid me well and said, hey, we're going to probably shut down the dog program. So sell the dogs and sell all the equipment that's left behind. Did that, sat around for a year, didn't have a job. One of the guys who had I first met in contracting had the contract with the Navy SEAL program. And I was speaking at a conference and I just happened to run into him and I was like, hey, good to see you. You know, this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Hey, by the way, if you got any work coming up or you know of anything, throw a brother a bone because, uh, you know, right now I've been not working for almost a year. It'd be great to go do something. And he goes, you know, this was in June. He goes, probably around August 1st, I might have something. The irony here was one of the cops at that big agency I worked with, he had left the agency too, and he was currently in the Navy SEAL BUDS program. Mm. So he he had told me he graduates from BUDS. What August. does BUDS mean? Basically, for SEAL teams, it's the acronym for their basic underwater demolition. Okay. So SEAL teams, it started off as initially as a combat diver explosive mm. thing, and it transformed into what it is today, which is the Navy SEAL program. And that is far more expansive than just basic underwater demolition, but that's what BUD stands for. Okay. So anyway, the uh, aspect of doing that, the guy says, hey, I'll let you know in August. Like I said, I knew my best friend was graduating BUDS on August 1st, and I don't want to be there for his graduation. I wanted to be there for his pinning ceremony where they it's pretty intense, where they pin the trident on them. And uh, so I wanted to go to that, but I didn't have the money at that time to go do that. August 1st, a phone call comes in. It was a guy who I talked to in June goes, hey, are you still interested in working for me? And I was like, sure. He's like, I need you to go to San Diego. This is where Coronado, San Diego is kind of like the same thing. It's just a little small island on the edge of California there. Not Mm -hmm. not an island, but attached to, it's complicated, but (laughs) it's a little edge of, of San Diego that is on the ocean. Coronado is like a peninsula attached to it. I think if you watch Anchorman, he explains probably San Diego very well. Yes, San Diego. San Diego. <laughs> yes. So he goes, "Hey, I need you to go to San Diego because uh, you're gonna I'm gonna put you with the SEAL teams there." And he says initially, he's like, "It might be for a month or two. Yep. And I was like, "This is great. I'm gonna go be able to see my best friend who just graduated buds." By August 10th, I was there. Yep. Fast forward, what was supposed to be two months turned into over four years for me there. Amazing. In that program and. It really moved me forward as a dog trainer because at this point I had been doing dogs right around close 20 years at that point. I had been a trainer, a state evaluator, things like that. I had confidence in my skills. But then when I'm sitting in a meeting room with these Navy SEALs who their supervisors, the chiefs and the uh, command staff that wanted to know, could the dog asset do the certain things on a mission? We had to confidently say yes or no. And if we said, yes, what are, what are our capabilities and what are the limitations that the dog can do? And that really changed my perspective on what I felt confident about, because now I had to tell the best people in the world what it is that we can or can't do with a dog. And I don't want to be the one that lets them down or oversells a capability that I couldn't do. Plus, I had a civilian boss who was the one who started the SEAL Team 6 dog program or part of that beginning of it. And he has levels of expectations and requirements that he wanted from us as well. So anyhow, that changed my perspective. It humbled me to say, okay, I need to go out and learn more. And that's how I ended up connecting to the science world and to the point of cognition that you mentioned we started this because the cognition part I saw a TV show and I saw it's called Is Your Dog a Genius? And Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University was doing various little experiments with mostly pet dogs, but it highly exposed what I saw as communication breakdown or over-reliance of human communication from the dog. And I knew that was happening in detection. So I see this guy on TV. I do a quick Google search to try to find his name in an email forum. I find one, I shoot him an email, say who I am and where I'm from, and would he be willing to help us? He wrote back 24 hours later, which was pretty cool. The guy who I saw on TV Mm. emails me back, and from that moment forward, we fostered a relationship that was between Duke University and the Office of Naval Research to fund a deeper research into cognition and how we could actually select dogs better Mm. for the Navy SEAL program. And we would still select dogs our normal ways. However, what we selected, then we ran them through a battery of testing that was cognitive testing. And this cognitive testing helps you understand, is your dog 
specifically in this region, stronger in memory or stronger in inference, which means problem solving or using things to solve a problem. That was absolutely a game changer because now what I got to learn before I even started training this dog was how it learns. Like for us as humans, it's either a visual learner or a hands-on practical learner. Just like humans, there's numerous ways we do it. This Myers Briggs personality very similar in nature. Mm. So this gave me an insight to the type of dogs that were best suited for what we needed. Mm. And the way it started was we tested the best dog that we we all liked as trainers. Like, why did you like this? That was Brian's first thing is do these tests on the dog that you guys think is your best dog. And that'll be the score that you guys kind of range the rest of the dogs by. And it was spot on. What we end up seeing was, so our average, our results on this was initially before the current way of doing things, we had about a 40, I think it was 43% pass rate for that meant that dog was from selection to deployment and made it out on a mission. Mm. So 43% of the dogs, which is a good number for as way we concerned, considering 1% of the humans make it that far. Absolutely. But, you know, the research is paying for this. Could we improve upon this? Ironically, after the couple of years of us doing it, we actually went to a 76% ratio of dogs that we selected made it through deployment. Wow. And what that really changed was we weren't selecting dogs like we were prior. Even though we liked certain things in our subjective selection, how good the dog bit, how much energy the dog showed, how much drive and motivation. And what we kind of learned was sometimes too much drive and motivation was detrimental to learning. Yep. And what we really applied was knowing that dog better. So if this dog was stronger in memory or stronger in inference, we had a much better training plan. And then the additional statistic that was really eye-opening was it wasn't what we were looking for, but we had a 30% reduction in training time. With the selection on inference or memory, what's preferable for you? For most working dogs, this is, goes across the board. So if you're doing something like from police work, detection work, search and rescue, most of these things, we want higher inference. Mm-hmm. So we want a dog in the 78 to 83% range in inference, and we want below 50% in memory. And what was unique was assistance dogs. There's an assistance dog program that also did the research. Mm -hmm. They look for the complete opposite of what we looked for, but they had the pretty close to the exact same success rate that we did. So both assistance dogs and working dogs performed the same tests, but what we were looking at score wise was completely different. They wanted dogs really high in memory Mm. and lower in inference. And we wanted the opposite. It kind of makes sense though, really, doesn't it? Well, for us, it does. For you and me as industry people, knowing a bit about canine behavior and training and the different roles between a working detection dog and a assistance dog. I mean, really, you don't want a dog that's overly intelligent and trying to problem solve when really it just needs to remember how to do the task for somebody in, in need. Yeah, the biggest thing was that we really learned was we didn't want the dog that was as motivated as we thought. Mm. Because kind of to the point that you made was the higher the motivation the less mentally flexible the dog was. Right. So when there was a more complex task and the dog gets so motivated, knows there's potentially reward at the end of it, Mm -hmm. they were less flexible to try multiple things to solve it. Right. The dog who's still motivated, still highly motivated, but not over a threshold, would figure out the solution faster than the dog who was overly motivated. Right. So we used to select dogs that were really, they look really good because they're so motivated, but looking back at it, and I look back at my entire career, yeah, we definitely struggled with certain things because the dogs were too motivated. We thought that motivation was really sexy and and powerful and mm-hmm. all those things, but it inhibits learning. It inhibits problem solving. Just a question for you on that. Would that parallel into what we consider flow state? Actually, it's so funny you say that. I just edited my podcast episode with Jens Frank last night mm. and he would talk about flow state. Yeah. And absolutely that is in there. Now, flow state, the way that it's typically talked about is training repetitions. Mm-hmm. And that is what either puts a dog into an anxiety or boredom state. Mm-hmm. The ideal, that middle ground where flow state is, and motivation is a factor in that, without a doubt. Where we look at it cognitively is I can know that answer before I begin my training. So mm-hmm. to stay in flow state, knowing that I have a dog who's higher in inference, let's say, and highly motivated. I know to keep in flow state, I got to keep repetitions much lower. Mm -hmm. 
So because if I go past a certain amount of repetitions, I'm going to hit anxiety mode for those type of dogs. Absolutely. So just for people out there, especially for working dog people, it sounds great to have a dog that's in a high state of drive all the time, but that also leads to a dog that's in a high state of anxiety if they feel like the reinforcement isn't always present or always available to them. There's a lot of complexity around that. It can be a win-win situation in some cases, but often a win-lose if you really do need a dog that's intelligent, that's working with you, and as you said, is a problem solver. Yeah. I can give an analogy that your audience might relate to because the TV shows were in Australia. The TV show Muster Dogs yes. gave a, not on purpose, but I got to watch it. In those group of puppies that they gave out, two dogs stood out to me on episode one. Mm-hmm. Alice, who went to the older gentleman, and Alice was very docile, not visually, didn't look like she was nearly as motivated as some of the other ones. Then Lucifer, he had a different name in episode one, but he, his name turned into Lucifer later on. Okay, Lucifer was a handful, along with a couple of the other dogs, but Lucifer was extremely a handful. Mm. Now, at face value, what I would look at in the past, I would have said, ooh, I want Lucifer, because mm-hmm. he looks pretty bulletproof. He could handle a lot. But what those subsequent episodes showed was Lucifer, because of his motivation and drive state, was way more difficult to train. Mm. Alice, who matured, had a good level of drive, but good focus, ended up being the best dog in the end because she learned the quickest. You could write off part of it being that the gentleman who had Alice was an experienced muster dog handler, and the gentleman who had Lucifer was a brand new, was newer, in the, was the newest one in the entire group as mm. a trainer. But every trainer who watched, especially the one who kind of did the evaluations of every dog team, knew Lucifer was a hard dog to train and even had to go help that trainer where Alice, who had a good level of motivation, but was very mentally flexible and was fantastic to train. But at face value, episode one, she looks like the most boring one, Mm -hmm. the most docile, and Lucifer looks like the most energetic pocket rocket cannon type of dog. And we have to look at it also from a training standpoint. And that dog is a much harder dog to train, harder to maintain, where Alice will give you consistency, predictability, and reliability in whatever it is that you're doing. In this case, it was the herding of the sheep. So it was a really good visual example, which wasn't what the show was trying to show. But from knowing what I know and knowing about inference and problem solving and, and arousal state, it was a great example of that's just a totally different program that I did had the same kind of shows the same kind of results. Mm. Interesting listening to you during your Pay seminars, because I haven't been to one of the canine cognition ones mm-hmm. yet, but listening to you talking to handlers, especially industry handlers, where you critique some of the old training methodologies that they were introduced to, such as running in the room and both the dog and the handler flying around at the speed of light, where they're pretty much exhausted by the time they do three unnecessary passes, where I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall you saying several times, I would rather a slow and steady dog, a dog that when you come in is more methodical in its search patterns, You know, this is something that I also shared alongside with what you recommended and have been met with some backlash on it before. People have said, oh, well, that's not how we do things here. You know, like we'd like to do a quick pass and then come back. Mm -hmm. I've listened to you talking about it and I would prefer that the dog comes in and has the capability rather than being put into overdrive, has the capability to enter the room and allowed to search at its pace, the pace of the dog effectively, Mm -hmm. where the handler primarily acts as adjudicator on the Mm -hmm. end of the lead, basically Mm -hmm. confirming or reinforcing the dog when it's right. Can you talk on that a little bit more? Yeah, so almost every detection discipline I can think of, searching at a running pace is not an effective way Mm. to find an odor that might be lower in volume. Let's look at a couple of programs. Let's look at, let's say, your guys' Border Force. And I would say they're looking for, in most cases, would be a larger amount of substance. Mm. That doesn't mean that's a larger amount of odor. Mm. When you look at it critically, the way I always teach is think of things like an engineer. Is searching at a running pace or close to running effective for an instrument to read and smell the things that are there? Versus working at a walking pace or a pace that the dog can be 
effective at sniffing the, each of these pallets, let's say, their shipping containers or lot lines of luggage, etc., going at a pace for that dog so it can properly sniff the things. Now, I teach all the time, scan, then detail. Mm. But even at scanning, I don't need scanning at running. Yes. It's behavioral economics like you heard me talk about. What I'm putting in isn't worth what I'm getting out. So if I'm running through the search, I'm not getting out of that. Now, in training, we put out training aids that the dogs know really well. We don't conceal them in the ways that the, in this case, our adversaries trying to smuggle things past Mm. the dogs are doing. Very important point. Yeah. Mm. So what works in training, because you'll have to the point that you made, many of the trainers say, well, this has worked for us for many years. So my first thing is, how much have you missed? That's a very important question. And they, we never know how much we miss. Yep. What we know is when I've worked with programs and we've changed, just made minor tweaks, slow some things down, work at an effective and efficient pace for that dog and handler, we see seizures go way up. We see the amount of fines increase quite a bit. And I can give a specific example, which is even the most recent one for us was a jail. Uh, one of the prison dogs there, the handler is actually a good friend of mine. And he had a really, he had a good dog to begin with, but his first dog had, was trained in a very similar way. We're talking about quick paced, excite the dog, go search. And last the year, like yeah, last year he had 140 fines in the jail and that was pretty good. Mm. His new dog that we trained a different way and trained him to work it differently, which was at this dog's pace, I would say it's not slow, it's not fast, it's a good, detailed, the dog naturally details, yep. but at the same time, you can present and do things as you need to. By April, so his dog started in January of this year, and by April, already had 120 fines. Wow. So three or four months into the year, his one dog is within 20 fines of his whole dog, is his more experienced dog of last year within 20 fines. So by the end of this year, it'll be amazing. So that clearly, it's the same environment. That's what mm. the great way to make this analogy is. This dog is searching the same environment as the previous dog was, same handler, same conditions, and we see a huge dramatic shift in what we're finding. So that gave them the answer to know, wow, we are probably missing a lot more than we knew. And we probably should adjust some things. Mm. And it takes having people who do not let their egos get in the way, who had done things a certain way previously and believed that it worked, sitting back and going, you know what? Maybe we've done it wrong for the past 30 years. Maybe we could actually be efficient. And I take that same lesson because the Navy SEAL program brings in outsiders, subject matter experts, to look at what they do and how they do it. And is there a way that can be better or more efficient at their tasks? So they're externally audited. Absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. And that is why they're one of the best programs in the world. Mm. Where in the dog community, especially bigger government dog programs, like to stay in their own tribe. Mm. They don't really want to reach out. They don't want to shift. Supervisors are like, well, we've this way has worked. And there's a unique thing in our U.S. government. We had a thing that kind of went down that basically said, your program needs to improve and be more efficient under your supervision. And failure to do so can be result in removal of you from the program mm-hmm. or demotion in rank. And wow, it was amazing how those administrators who though had been dog handlers years ago, now were in a position of administration duties and running programs, became very invested into how can we improve and is there things that we can do better than we've done in the past. But when there was no incentive, those administrators... Anybody who brings in new ideas to the table sometimes would get shut down because it goes against the grain. Right. And everything evolves. And I say that you've heard me say this analogy before. I say to those administrators, if you're not willing to evolve or change and become more efficient, please give me that computer that's sitting on your desk. We're going to throw that away. I'm going to give you a typewriter back Mm. because a typewriter still works. You can still send me messages. You're going to type them out and mail them to me. Yep. It's not nearly as effective or as efficient, but it still freaking works. Mm. And we need people to understand that dog programs also evolve. We know way more now in the past 20 years than we did the previous 30 because of what science has shown us, our ability to adapt, dogs being selectively bred for certain things now that weren't the same back in those days. Mm. And the technology and concealment of what we're looking for has changed. Absolutely. So all of these other things change, but we don't change. You're bound to be struggling. You know, a lot of these programs write off certain dogs because 
maybe the dog was fine. The training didn't meet what that dog needed because the training wasn't flexible. Mm. It just needs overall. There needs to be soul searching in some of these bigger programs to say, how can we improve? What can we do to be more efficient and more effective at what we do? And if it means changing the pace in which we search and stop the institutionalized regurgitation of this for the past 30 years and start showing that we do it this way now, even our U.S. Customs has made modifications specifically in the past since I know 2013, 14, they had made a switch from how they did things to how they do things now. The funny part is I still see your country that copied a lot of our customs programs to a T hasn't made those same switches that our country did. So it's a comfortability part in an ego thing that really holds back most times changes. Yeah. I understand very much. So I've been a supervisor. I understand change doesn't happen overnight, but I also, because I've been in these programs, understand there is that glass ceiling of, oh yeah, we'll change. And then it always gets cut off or nothing. It changes because that lead administrator doesn't put in the time and effort to go back down there and watch things work and listen to their teams. Very few of them have ever sat in a seminar and learned this stuff Mm. because most of them feel they can't be taught anything else. And at any point in time, you're a person that says, I have nothing more to learn. You can't teach me. Get the fuck out. You do not need to be there anymore. If that's your mentality that you can't learn, there's nothing more to teach you. You're right. You're worthless to a program. We can always learn. Mm. There's always something we can look at and get better at. I've been doing it now 30 years and I'm still learning things. I'm still taking in things. I'm still willing to look at something and go, huh, can I use that? Can my toolbox be enhanced by understanding that aspect versus shutting it down and going, yeah, I can do things. And I've heard trainers say that before. I'm not going to that seminar. I'm not doing this. There's nothing more I can really learn. You're right. You're already shut off. So don't waste your money. Mm. Number two, you should probably get out of the program because you're stuck in a way and you only know how to do it that way. And the fact that you're not willing to hear anything else, it's pointless. Yeah, I entirely agree with what you're saying. I've been in programs and even suffered from it myself where I've defended positions that don't need defending. Mm -hmm. There is a, a good saying from a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People where there is one of the habits that says, Seek first to understand, then to be understood. I believe that it's a better relationship when you're trying to improve and enhance programs that do need to be improved and do need to be enhanced. There were some positive criticisms that you have or some constructive criticisms that you had with some of our general agencies where they've adopted programs that the United States introduced 20, 30 years ago. And even though you guys have moved on and are significantly different, In some of our agencies, they've remained the same because somebody in a high-ranking position is still defending that point. Sometimes that makes you feel very vulnerable because you're not going to get the credit anymore and that's what people are most alarmed about is, I've been the guy for this period of time. If I don't defend this position, somebody else is going to come in and get the credit. Mm -hmm. But part of being, and I found this myself, is part of being a good leader and part of being a good facilitator is who cares who gets the credit? Mm-hmm. Like you were intelligent enough to bring somebody in. I want to make this program better right. when I leave it than it was when I got it. Yeah. And if I'm keeping it the same, I have failed to do my job exactly. as far as I'm concerned. You're either going backwards or you're going forwards. Mm-hmm. I've heard that statement said a couple of times. Like if you're trading water, you're, you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to circle back on this conversation to the selection criteria of those dogs that you were talking about, Lucifer and Alice Mm -hmm. in the Mustard Dogs Mm -hmm. program, because a lot of what you were talking about was making me think about I would have and many of my colleagues in the early days would have selected Lucifer. I would have too. Yeah, that type of dog would have been very appealing to us because Mm -hmm. we, especially for detection work because we would have thought this is the dog that we need to run into the room and sprint past everything and this dog's going to make our work extremely easy for us. Where these days, and certainly in in my career when I started to become more informed, better educated and able to see it for myself, the new selection criteria that I I definitely would have had is a dog like Alice, Mm -hmm. where the dog comes in, there is intelligence there, the dog moves at a 
a methodical pace. The dog is very well steeped in understanding what odor is. And effectively, the dog does its job, does what it's trained for, rather than the dog that thinks it's doing its job and thinks it's doing what it's trained for. But effectively, you get to the end of it. And as you said, you've got a dog that's 20% efficient as compared to a dog that's 75 to 80% efficient. You're exactly right. I lost my keys the other day, and I don't know if it was you who said to me or somebody else, they said, I bet you found them exactly in the last place you looked. (laughs) Yeah. Again, to draw a parallel into what you were saying about training before is that often in training, you only know what you find. What gets past you, no one knows. I mean, that sneaks on by, but you do know what you find, and it's the same thing with looking for your keys. Like eventually you find them in the last place you looked. I'm kind of drawing a, a silly parallel there, but effectively what I'm trying to say is that unless you do have a peer-reviewed program, unless you do have a, a program where people are stepping in and as you made reference to the Navy SEALs before where they have an external audit, you've got intelligent people that are stepping in and saying, mm-hmm. why are you doing this? Yep. Or can't you see that this is not effective or it's changed and time has moved on and science has moved on, but we haven't in this program for some reason mm-hmm. and now it's time to change. And again, that's not the best time to defend those positions. So yeah, great points. I'm really- I, I mean, I would love- to see, I got to see it with the Victoria police, their administrator came down and I think initially he was only going to sit in for like the first day of classroom. He ended up being there every single day. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. And they have adapted their program. They've done a lot of soul searching and they did adopt the mentality of, I want to actually improve our program and apply techniques that get us there. Mm. I also understand where the administrator goes off and says, hey, look, I don't want us chasing every new fandangled training thing out there because before we know it, there's 20 systems in in place. I get that. But we also can't sit still and do nothing. Mm. So to me, it is imperative that who that administrator is has an active role in learning what's happening in the industry, putting themselves in those classes, in those seminars, so that way they have an understanding because right now what they a lot of them typically get is the handlers or trainers coming to them saying, hey, we want to do this thing. They don't understand it, don't get it, but they do know what they've been doing had worked for them. So keep doing what we're doing versus going, all right, I need to know about this. Where can I learn more about this? And them approaching that with an open mind to say, okay, let's learn about this. I haven't done this in a little while. I'm sure there's something I could probably take away. And when they put their eyes on it, get their hands dirty again and work a leash and watch the dogs because the dogs again now are also different in many cases, the type of dogs that they worked Mm. and have a better understanding of what the boots on the ground are going through and understanding that education has changed and the information that we have is more in depth. So that understanding will help them guide that entire program to its next iteration and moving that needle forward again, to make that program more reliable, more efficient, and more effective. Yeah, very good points. After all this has been said and done, out of the canine cognition and the odor pays, where does your heart fall? <sighs> Just to put you on the spot. I was, <laughs> it's hard to say, but I would still say detection, the mm-hmm. odor pays part of it, because that's something I can do every single day. Right. Cognition is the excitement of learning the new thing I have, which is learning that dog in front of me. Mm -hmm. So I love that. It's just not something that gets used as frequently because it's only used during initial testing, Mm -hmm. but it's so fun to learn and do. Mm. So And it's different. Yeah. It gives you variety in what you're actually doing as a job role. Every dog we watch, no dog scores exactly the same. Yep. So you're going to see a lot of similarities but you do see things that are different. And these little brain games that we do, this is the part I'm sure people are always interested in, like, what are these games? Yeah. These are little brain games that we do. We have basically three inference-based tests, and then we have, it's technically four memory-based tests. You're doing two runs with distraction and two runs without distraction memory. Mm -hmm. But in any case, these things tell us information. And the biggest thing I always tell people is not how smart your dog is. It's telling you how your dog solves things in its world. Right. Does it use memory to solve it? Does it use inference? And knowing this is what helps you actually be a better trainer or communicator to your dog. 
without knowing that information, you still learn a lot of things, but you end up trying a lot of things that don't necessarily work. Mm. This is how we got to our 30% reduction of training time was because we knew the pathway to go much faster. We knew to try this, not that way quicker because we knew this dog's cognitive scores. Right. Where before we would still get there, but it might take me five to 10 reps to find the thing that worked. Where now within three reps, I know which one's going to work. Okay. So that's where the biggest change happens. And it allows us to be, again, I'm more efficient and more effective with my time. And I'm also getting the most out of my training sessions because I know for this dog, this dog needs this many kind of reps and this dog needs that many. And again, going back into like what Bob Bailey talks about, the behavioral economics of this, mm-hmm. am I getting out of it what I'm putting into it? And I want to put in as little as possible so I get maximum payout. That's the true design of being really effective is I only have to put in so much, but I have a high yield. Mm. So for dog training, if I can put in a few reps and the dog clearly understands what I'm doing, that's good economics. And I get that by my first baseline, knowing what my dog is cognitively. So that way I'm stacking the deck in my favor to get each training session to be the most effective Mm -hmm. with the proper amount of reps versus what my arbitrary mindset was you know, well, we always do 10 because it's the first day of this training block and there's always 10 reps. Well, for this dog, that's not going to work. Yeah, you can make it do it and you can get through it, but you have seven ineffective reps. Right. Or you have seven reps where you help the dog get to the answer because after the first three, it was done. That's the art to me where I want to become a better engineer as a dog trainer. I want to be a canine engineer. Think of things critically dissect them, be willing to fail numerous times until I find the right one. However, I can reduce my failures if I actually understand what I'm working with first Mm. and maximizing the way to communicate to that animal. And then that gets me the best of both worlds. The behavioral cognition, can that be done online or does it have to be done in person? We've debated with doing online, but the biggest issue we run into is the number of ways people can make an error. Mm Mm-hmm. By doing it in person and the way we have the sequence being done right now is you do the sequence without dogs so we can get your skills down pretty good before we have you go do it with a dog. And when you do it with a dog, you're there with a certified canine cognition instructor and that instructor is there overseeing because if they catch a mistake, they've caught it in one rep Mm -hmm. versus you. if you did it online, you wouldn't know that that error occurred and you repeated it numerous times after that, which means your score is now skewed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So we haven't quite cracked the code yet on how we can make it online. I have been trying now for a couple of years. We're down to a few new ideas that we're thinking about. And what we might do is a, some versions of these brain games that are Mm -hmm. easier to do. And some information is better than no information. So what we're looking at is, by next year, having a few of the brain games to be done online and you got a starting point. And if you want to go deeper, then all you have to do is show up to a seminar either put on by us or the people that we've trained to be cognition instructors. So with the canine cognition, would you recommend it for a pet dog? Absolutely. It's for any, you train a dog to do anything, dock diving, agility, Understanding your dog's cognitive ability will make you more effective in training whatever it is you do. It does kind of get put into the uh, pigeonhole of, oh, since camera's teaching, it's detection or police-oriented. Yep. Nope, absolutely not. I've had people who do Mondio Ring do it. I've had, and they've all said the same thing. Wow, this is really insightful Mm. and helps me understand the dog I have because Dr. Hare makes a great joke in his presentation. There's somebody sleeping in your bed that you don't know yet. And that's that dog that's in that bed with you every night that's hanging out with you that you don't know how it learns yet because you haven't gone down that cognitive testing path and some of those brain games that helps you understand how they communicate. And that's critical. That's a fascinating statement. Yeah. Hmm. Anything further to add on that? I think I highly encourage people to go learn about canine cognition. You can search canine cognition and emotion. You'll find classes that Dr. Hare has online that are completely free that help people understand cognition. There's his book, The Genius of Dogs. Mm -hmm. His wife is Australian, so Vanessa Woods. Okay. So Brian does come to Australia, I know, at least a couple times a year on average. If they want to support a fellow Aussie who's his wife, Mm. uh, buy the book. They have a second book called The Survival of the Friendliest. That one isn't as much cognition related, but it has some 
But The Genius of Dogs, the, that book in particular, is very much towards cognition and the classes he has online. And then if you go, of course, to the Ford K9 website, which is just FordK9.com, K number nine, we have different things on there as well. But we have our we have numerous webinars that go into some of these things. It's still detection focused because of what we do, mm. but there's still a ton of information out there if they just go search. And again, there'll be more coming out the next year or so. Let's say, for example, I'm in Australia and I wanted to go off and do canine cognition. Yep. How would I enroll in it? Right now in Australia, Alex Edwards from Refine Your Canine mm-hmm. is a certified canine cognition instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hosts canine cognition seminars every so often. So mm-hmm. I would say reach out to him to find out when he's doing his next one. Yep. I think he's done two or three so far. And then those, if they're not in Australia, but in, let's say, the UK, we have a trainer there, Georgie Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Canine Brain Training is her company. Yep. She's probably our most active instructor. Mm-hmm. She is doing at least one or two a month in the UK in various areas. Yep. And they can all find that on the Ford Canine Yeah, Ford Canine. Or like I said, you hop on Facebook, putting out Canine Brain Training, you'll find Georgie Armstrong. And if you, uh, Alex Edwards, for you guys, just refine your canine, you can find him both on social media and online. Awesome. Hey, Cameron, I really want to thank you not only for coming on the podcast today, but for sharing an abundance and decades of knowledge with me, all my colleagues and the people who attended your seminar. It's been fascinating to get to know you. You're definitely one of these people. You're like a transformer. You're more than meets the eye. (laughs) You know, like I've especially got to know that about you. I think one day you and I were sitting down and talking on the couch, just having dinner together. And you said, people know me as the detection guy, but you know, I have a long and steeped history in working dogs as well because of, you know, my time as a police officer and a canine handler. But, you know, like listening to you explaining a story about your time over in Ramstein, Ramstein or yep, Ramstein, Ramstein yep. Air yep. Force uh, base and working amongst Europe with all the sporting dog groups and so forth. I mean, there's an abundance and a wealth of knowledge that exists within your head and the time and effort that you've spent collaborating with that scientific community that you brought over last year when we did the Red Team seminar Mm -hmm. in Sydney, Australia. It certainly gave me an insight onto many of the things that I could improve in myself about my own training, handling, you know, listening to what all the presenters were up there on stage talking about. It just goes to show that like the great thing about information is that it is abundantly evolving. And if you're not on board with it, you're going backwards. You're not yeah. going forward. So it is great to see so many people putting themselves out there to learn new information, not to be overwhelmed by it, but to add it as an addition to what they're already doing. Once again, mate, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate sitting down and just there's a lot of times we may not be aware, but I even listen to you having conversations with other people rather than have any input into it or interrupt what you're talking about. It's just lovely to hear you riff. You're very passionate about what you do without sounding like I'm blowing the smoke, I would consider you a master trainer in your field. Like you really have spent a long time refining it and consistently adding to it and looking how to make it better and allowing other people to come in and audit your work as well. So you lead by example in that field. It's been a privilege to learn under you. And even when I was talking to people about you coming and doing the seminar, people were saying, you know, like, why would you recommend me going to Cameron? I said, because Cameron's the guy that I listen to when I want to improve the things that I don't know about. Effectively, when I'm trying to find out how to be better in scent detection or scent work and so forth, because you're already doing the hard work for everybody else, I listen to your podcast which is Talking Sense. I listen to you online in YouTube when you're interviewing other people, but even adding your own insight into it or bringing industry experts in. Mm -hmm. So plug yourself, mate. Tell everybody (laughs) where to find you. If you're not doing an online course with Cameron and you want to get into this field of a fascinating field of scent detection work, you should be at least looking at what Cameron has on offer. So go ahead, tell everyone how to find you. Well, first, thank you very much for having me out here. And it's always the, a pleasure, mate. The amazing courtesy you and your wife Norella have shared with me, being able to be in your house and, and be the house guest uh, for well, your nearly, family now. Yeah, like, I was. Yeah. There's an old Benjamin Franklin quote: mm. "Friends and guests." Are like fish. After three days, they begin to stink. So <laughs> the fact that I made it, you know, more than three days and I didn't stink up the place so bad that you moved me out, then that was great. Mate, really... you're the perfect guest. <laughs> uh, anybody that has host Cameron and has him come to stay with you, he is the perfect guest. I have to tell an amusing story. During the time that Cameron was staying here, I had to travel into Queensland to do a couple of days of staff teaching and I had to do a speech at a dog day out festival, it's called up in Noosa in Queensland. And I was ringing 
back to my wife every day just to check in on her, see how her and Cameron are. And I said, how is Cam? She goes, I actually don't know. I haven't seen Cameron. She goes, we bumped into each other in the hallway on the way through. Funny story is Cameron's got two sides, very extroverted when he's teaching and he's doing his work. But during the other times, he likes to perfect his social media. So he just sits down and has an iron-like clasp on getting his work done. So oh, yeah, I, I hermit up. I go into the room. I just stay in there. I just work on those things because for me, that's my like... You're saying like the downtime, even though it's work and you joked around like, that's not downtime. You're working. Still. I know it is. But for me, having that time to sit there doing video editing, podcast editing is where my brain goes into a trance and yep. I can just do that hours on end. You guys really made that very easy to go do because you had a great setup here. So I was able mm. to lock myself into a room and get stuff done. It was so nice and relaxing. It was great recharge to have that. Well, I'm glad you're comfortable, mate. And once again, as I said, you're a perfect house guest and yeah. welcome anytime when you're here. So and yeah, go ahead. So um, to answer your question about the social media, yes. <laughs> so they can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and it's just, you know, either at Cameron Ford K number nine or our website, which mm-hmm. is just www.fordfordk9.com. Our website has everything. So the podcasts are in there, webinars are in there, online videos are in there. And then you just search at Ford K9 on YouTube and you'll go to our YouTube channel where I have, it's got to be over 200 videos now from days when I didn't even really know what I was doing. So the video quality will be okay yep. to now where we're getting better at it. We still have, I still have a long ways to go to where I want to be, but there's still, there's a lot of information there. And my goal, like you said, is to always share information. I saw throughout my career when people had ideas, including myself, getting shut down because it wasn't the way that somebody had always done it. Mm. My goal now in life is because I'm in a position to give information to people so that way they can fulfill those needs that they had, like I did, to learn and to improve their relationship with their dogs and to improve their training. So everything I do and I'm focused on is geared towards sharing that information for those who want to learn it. There's a one word statement from the Japanese called Kaizen. It simply stands for continuous improvement. Yeah that summarizes what we all should be aspiring to do is continuously improve and consistently and readily go forward. So once again, mate, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Mr. Cameron Ford for his time in Australia and making himself available to come do the podcast for Pet Carers. I'd like to thank our major sponsors, Pet Resorts Australia. You can find them on petresortsaustralia.com. For all your pet care needs, if you're going away on holidays, you can leave your cat, your dog, your bird, your guinea pig, with them. We were in mainly New South Wales and Queensland, but watch this space. You never know with Pet Resorts Australia where they're going to be next. Find them on the website, as I said before, petresortsaustralia.com. And also our other sponsor, Canine Evolution. For all your dog training requirements, you can find them on www.canineevolution, spelt canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, evolution.com.au. They offer a range of service, stay in trains, in-house, at our location, problem solving, behavioral problems, you name it, Canine Evolution can help you. If you want to find a list of our expert trainers, go online to Canine Evolution and they can help you out with whatever you need in that field. So once again, thanking Cameron Ford and thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Goodbye. <laughs>